Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Kathy Grace and Dr. Kenya Wolf with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hello, everybody. We're glad to be back with you with Ed's Up. This is Dr. Kathy Grace, and I'm with Dr. Kenya Wolf. And today we are very excited to have uh, a I would, I would say somebody who's been around a very long time, but who also is in a very new position in her career. So I'm going to let Kenya introduce her and let her give you a little bit of information about our guest today. Wonderful. Well, we are so fortunate uh, to have Dr. Mariana Soto Manning, and I hope that I pronounced your name correctly. Um, she is a scholar that I've followed since I was a graduate student and someone who um, whose work has influenced me and so many of our listeners, I'm sure. She um, in the past was a professor of early childhood education at Teachers College and this past fall became the fifth uh, president of Erickson's Institute. And so I'm curious, I'd love to hear how that transition is going now that you are in Chicago. Thank you so much, Kenya, for your um, invitation, for your words about my work. I think that nothing means more to a scholar than to know how their work has impacted others. Because I think that a lot of times as scholars, we feel isolated. We feel that we are writing and wonder how will this translate in the lives and the everyday um, practices of folks? So thank you for letting me know. Um, I have been in Chicago now a little bit more than six months. Um, it has been, um, it was a difficult decision, but I know now it was the right decision. I um, was attracted to Erickson because of its mission and because of its history. It was, Erickson Institute was founded about 55 years ago with the aim of preparing Head Start teachers, quality Head Start teachers. So when the government decided on Head Start, there weren't necessarily a lot of ways that Head Start teachers were prepared in a way that honored the whole child within a context, within communities, families. So we understand it's not just about the child in isolation, but the child comes from a family, a community. And so we understand that you can't love the child if you don't love where the child comes from. And I saw in Chicago really lots of parallels to the work that I had been doing in New York City. Um, one of the things that first led me to um, accept applying for this position was their focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. They really wanted to think about what does equity in early childhood look like? How can every child feel belonging within the context of preschool classrooms, infant care, within the context of early childhood settings? Because belonging is not a given, right? A lot of times we think that it's something neutral, but some kids arrive and they immediately ascribe belonging, whereas some others arrive and they are immediately feeling like outsiders. Even we adults have this feeling sometimes. So we wanted to really take a proactive approach in terms of belonging, in terms of thinking about belonging as being very much central to inclusion, to diversity, to equity. 
and the board had done some work related to it, the board of trustees, the faculty had done some work related to it. And so it felt like someone with my background would be able to continue the work so that we would be able to put in place um, a new chapter of Erickson in terms of focusing on quality, access, impact, and the most underserved communities. And so since I um, got started in September, I um, have um, fundraised for a program that's going to um, really a fellowship that's going to fund um, teachers who come from minoritized, disinvested communities to come to Erickson to become early childhood teachers certified in early childhood, early childhood special ed, and either bilingual or ESL. And insofar as they teach in low-income communities and communities of color for four years past graduation, they will have their tuition forgiven. So because we know the importance of black and brown teachers on black and brown children, and we know that so much of the achievement gap, so many of the disciplinary actions are really embody racial disparities. So I um, have to say I've been warmly welcomed by so many members of the community in Chicago. Black women leaders in particular have been extremely supportive, the board of trustees, but I have gotten to know different neighborhoods, different um, organizations, and I really feel hopeful about the future. So I will say that I miss teaching a bit, so I'm considering teaching next year um, as president, so we're exploring that possibility. I'm still working with doctoral students. Um, but I do feel that um, it's it was the right decision for me to be here. Well, I'm going to ask a question that is related to what you just said about the diversity and the particularly with the African-American community, since we are in the deep south and the fact that we are also in uh, representing a lot of rural communities that makes it even harder for placement of teachers uh, that are minority and also because we also have such low pay, particularly in our infant toddler and early childhood settings other than public schools. Is the fellowship program going to be, uh, I guess you could say, somewhat deliberate about looking across the geographic differences in the country? And sometimes they tend to be more urban centered, and that's certainly important. That's not to discount that. But I'm always trying to speak up for rural kids uh, since they're often forgotten sometimes in conversations about need. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, the rurality issues in terms of equity. Absolutely. So um, we are starting with um, cohorts of 30 to 35 teachers. Those teachers will be placed within the Chicagoland area. However, we are working with the Illinois um, State um, Board of Education to develop and study the model so that it can be adapted across the state and hopefully across the country, because I think that we are all committed to the preparation of um, teachers, of good teachers, of quality teachers for a growing majority of Black and Brown children. So, um, 
Whereas this pilot is Chicago-based, I can foresee phase two really expanding beyond the urban area. And part of that is within the state of Illinois, um, 82% of teachers are white and over 50% of the children are children of color. So I think that, you know, um, so many um, black children are in in rural areas. They're not always in urban areas. And now there's so many Latinx people who are as well in more rural areas. So it's our responsibility to also attend to different settings. Well, I'm going to ask you one of the questions, and I'm going to turn back over to Kenya. Uh, in terms of your scholarly achievements, you've authored 10 books, and many of them focus on what we've just been talking about, inequities and injustices in early childhood teaching and teacher education. You have spent part of your time at Columbia during the COVID pandemic, and then you've moved to Chicago. How do you see that this has impacted the work of not just teacher educators, but the work that we have to do with regard to families and the more comprehensive view that people would have of early childhood educators? Thank you for that question. I, um, one of the things that I think that the pandemic has um, brought into sharp focus is the fact that we need to attend to the mental health and well-being of educators, of teachers, of infant and toddler providers, um, because we know that teaching is only going to be effective, if the professions are only going to be effective, if they themselves are not experiencing lower quality of life, are not experiencing such heightened stressors. So with a doctoral student in New York City, I did a study that documented the level of stress of teachers of color. And um, we found that according to the perceived stress scale, um, they were two standard deviations above the norm, which is comparable to emergency room doctors and nurses. So we know that when teachers are not well, their interactions with children are not going to be as positive and productive. We know that it's one of the variables that matter the most. So we really need to think about teachers as full humans and really attend to teacher mental health so that we're not just focusing on methods. And this doesn't go just for the beginning teachers. It goes in terms of teachers teacher burnout. So I would say that that's the very first lesson that we have to take. Um, The second lesson is there are many ways of engaging and there are many family, many ways that families engage. So I worked with teachers very closely. And one of them talked about how Abuela was always there on the Zoom uh, box with the grandchild, even though She did not speak English, but really supporting her grandson. So part of that is really thinking about what are the ways that we can engage families and not just focus on parents? What are the ways that families look different, that families care differently? And so I think that the uh, the Zoom screen has provided us insights into really the assets of families, their funds of knowledge, really the cultural wealth that exists. A lot of times we make assumptions that children, especially those who are living in low and low income communities and families, that they don't have things, that they are at deficit, that they're at risk. 
When in reality, what happened was many times teachers were surprised by how much love and support children were having at home and sometimes how they were navigating super small spaces with lots of people and how their expectations for home were completely unreasonable. So that would be a second lesson from the pandemic. The third lesson from the pandemic, um, again, comes from teachers, is really thinking about what are the ways in which we may not have realized that children did not feel fully comfortable within the context of our classrooms. And what do we do about it? How do we make school more like home as opposed to trying to make homes more like schools? What does it mean for kids to have to take turns going to the bathroom? What does it mean for kids to be expected to be potty trained by a certain age or they can't go to a certain class? So those are all ways that the pandemic has really questioned our assumptions, troubled our assumptions. And finally, I think that in terms of discipline, it brought into sharp focus the fact that at times the best we can expect is for children to show up. And so punishing them for being in school when they may be communicating things that you're not even aware of is not the way to go. And really asking yourself, what can I do differently? What can my director do differently? How can we work together to make sure that this child succeeds? So all of those things are really important. I know that the focus has been at large on two very prominent discourses, the word gap in terms of the vocabulary. And part of it is children will develop. Like if you don't talk to a lot of people for a long time, you forget. It's like writing. Sometimes it takes a while to get back into the groove of writing because it's a socialization process. So the best that we can do is not by having intervention programs, but by providing socialization for young children. And I think that there are lots of intervention programs which actually prevent children from interacting with each other. The second thing is the social emotional learning. And there's a lot of children getting to breathe. And, but part of it is we need to ask ourselves, am I asking the child to self-regulate by normalizing conditions that may not be okay, maybe even abusive or traumatic for that child. And in that way, how is early childhood potentially harming children as opposed to really cultivating their strength and shedding light on their brilliance? And we've seen these in the Tennessee study where the Ophirin has found that some children were worse off going to preschool. And part of that is many of the studies that we know about the benefits of, the, of early education, they were quality early education. So we need to think about quality and we need to ask quality for whom and according to whom, because our population keeps changing. And if children are being told that their ways of speaking, their images, their cultures are not part of the classroom, then we create yet another obstacle, yet another transition for them to have to go through. And we know that transitions are hard. So the more that we can minimize transitions and mitigate the discontinuity, the better off kids are. And that's especially the case in the pandemic when there has been a discontinuity of schooling. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
Well, many of our listeners and myself included have used Erickson's math um, resources. And I know you all have a lot of resources and a lot of research going on. I'm curious if there's something, and I know you already mentioned your um, pro new initiative um, to recruit teachers, but is there anything else that you want to share that you are working on with Erickson that we want to be looking for? Well, right now, um, I am really trying to work in partnership with faculty. So um, really thinking about what are the connections between early intervention and culturally sustaining pedagogy? How can we align these seemingly separate areas in ways that benefit children because the children come whole? Now, I will say that there is amazing work being done at Erickson that I'm not part of. So the early math project under Professor Jackie Chen is excellent. And I know that lots of people use their videos and really has guided the way that we think about young children's mathematical development. They have a new project that's called Racial Justice in Mathematics or Racial Justice in Early Mathematics that I would hope that folks would look out to. The other project that I wanted to highlight is the tech project, which is the children's engagement with technology that's being led by Professor Alexis Loricella. And I think that in a lot of ways, we need to look toward the future for tech engagement as opposed to looking to medical guidelines and recommendations um, because the world has changed. It has changed quite a bit during the pandemic and young children's ways of making meaning have changed as well. And then finally, I want to highlight um, the work on um, social emotional learning being done by Professor Amanda Moreno. She's really, um, we here at Erickson under her direction offer one of the only master's degrees with a specific focus on social emotional development. And I think that especially now with the pandemic, we need to think about social emotional development in depth and not just as an, a bag of tricks that children have to experience. And by doing that, somehow they can self-regulate. There are, of course, tons of others, including um, the infant work and infant mental health that Linda Gilkerson has been doing. So, but we are really thinking about what does it mean to engage in these work, prioritizing equity and always pursuing justice. So while this is not my work in particular, I do think it's part of the collective work of Erickson and we are launching a new website in May. So I hope that um, folks listening will visit it so that they can learn more about the amazing initiatives that are going on here. Well, we certainly want to ask you about a program that has a very intriguing title, and we know you are a contributor to this program called 1800 Days. So could you tell us more about this concept? And it sounds, uh, as I said, very intriguing and pretty unique. Thank you. Yes. So we are in the process of launching um, episodes of the 1800 Days podcast, the story of early childhood education in America. And it goes, it really covers um, 55 years from Head Start to Pre-K for All. And part of that is because much of the access to early education to low and low income families came with Head Start. So really thinking about it starts now with the pandemic, 
And it chronicles back all the way, some of all the way to Head Start. So some of the um, people interviewed are um, people who are practitioners, some are researchers, our co-founder, the amazing Barbara Bowman, um, who is 93, um, is present in every episode, also a way of documenting her wealth of knowledge in an accessible way. I know that in a lot of ways, early childhood education um, is a field that um, is located within the larger, broader field of education. And as such, it tends to be very text-based. We wanted to make sure that we were able to reach family childcare providers, that we were able to reach folks who perhaps may be interested in knowing that perhaps if Head Start had been properly funded, we wouldn't be in pre-K for all now. And what are some of the issues related to the justification of funding for early childhood education, that it's often based on economic terms and it hinges on readiness. So we have brought a variety of experts um, in conversation and it's narrated by the amazing reporter, Natalie Moore, who is a Southsider um, in Chicago. So she interviewed Barbara for many hours uh, over many weeks. And one of the things that's very unique is that both of them raised kids in the South side of Chicago, generations apart. And some of the very issues still persist. Wow, so interesting. Well, I know our listeners will be interested in looking and we'll definitely put a link um, to that web, to that um, podcast in our notes as well. Thanks Thank for you. And we will be... Um, our plans are to develop a curriculum around it so that people can engage with it. But in the meantime, um, you can access the podcast in any venue where podcasts are um, offered. So I do hope that folks will engage with it. I think that in a lot of ways, early childhood gets minimized within the broader um, society and field. And it's too important. But 1800 days is really around the first four or five years of a child's life. So that's how the title came about. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate the time that you have spent with us. And uh, there are many more questions that I would love to talk to you about as far as just the Head Start piece, because uh, having, again, spent most of my years in Mississippi, Mississippi is a real integral part of the Head Start story. Uh, so maybe we'll have another time to visit about just that one aspect. Uh, I think that you're in a position, I'm sure you, you've mentioned it several times, but you're certainly acutely aware of the fact that you're in a position at a very historical time in uh, the development of the next, whatever we want to call it, decades of early care and education, uh, similar to when Head Start first started, except this is Head Start on steroids and uh, hopefully more inclusive, as you've mentioned. Uh, If you were were going to give us any advice or from your wisdom from where you have been and where you can see in a vision, where do you think we'll be five years from now? Well, um, (laughs) I will say that if... um, 
if the early childhood funding passes without provision for professional development and wages, we will not be in a very different place because we are going to want to do more with less. And based on the Tennessee study, if we learned anything there is that low quality preschool, pre-K can do more harm than good. But we know that high quality stands to really make a contribution. So if we are making contributions in high quality, early education, if we are paying teachers well, because the professional well-being of teachers will directly impact their ability to engage with children. If they're working with children and then they're having to sell products and draw an Uber, they're not going to be fully present because they will be worried about whether they can pay for bills. So I hope that we can take heed and that we can uh, take the lesson from some of the uh, Nordic countries where early childhood education is a well-paid profession and that preparation is provided by the state because it is a public service. It is an investment in our future, regardless of the economic benefits. Young children are our future. So why would we want to give them something that's not the best when we know that high quality makes that impact? So I see two roads, and I think that we have a fork right now on the road. Depending on what Congress decides in terms of what it allocates its funds toward, when it started, I was very optimistic. Now I'm a little bit more skeptical because the focus, again, tends to be more on access, which is more visible from an electoral perspective. However, it's less impactful long term. So let's hope that Congress chooses the right road so that we can invest in our future in the right way. Well, you've given us a great deal to think about, and I appreciate the last comments that you made about this is sort of a a fork in the road for us now. Uh, Dr. Wolf, would you have any other comments or questions you want to ask? I love that the way I love the idea of the fork in the road, and I think that that's a great place to end. And hopefully as you're listening, we will see it unfold. And I tend to be optimistic, uh, cautiously, but I certainly feel inspired by your work. And thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I know early childhood is hard work, but it's necessary. It's fundamental. It's the future waiting to unfold right before our eyes. And it's always an honor to be part of it. So thank you. And hopefully we will be um, celebrating five years from now. I certainly agree. Thank you again so much. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from Erickson and more from you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olemiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.